We were the first restaurant in the United States to serve truffles. And you couldn't even buy them here. No one was importing them. So we had somebody going to the airport in Milan with a box of truffles, handing it to whoever they were in contact with, and then that person would deliver them to us. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On today's episode, I sat down with Laura Maiolio Lobel, owner of Barbera, and her head waiter, Eduardo Maliochini. Here's what Betsy Bober-Pallavi, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about this business. In addition to being an exquisite culinary dining experience, visiting Barbetta allows one to take a walk back in time, not only here in Manhattan, but in Italian history as well. The connecting four brownstones, originally built by the Astor family, allowed Ellie and me a view into what it was like to live on West 46th Street in the early 1900s and Laura Maiolio has done her best to retain the charm and beauty of this era by amassing an extraordinary collection of antiques displayed throughout, including the magnificent chandelier built in 1775, which takes center stage in the dining room. Opened by her father in 1906, Laura took Barbetta over in 1962, remodeling the space from top to bottom and creating a beautiful and romantic Italian garden where diners can relax and savor not only their meal, but their time away from the busy streets of New York. My name is Laura Maiolio Lobel. The name of the restaurant is Barbetta. And my name is Eduardo Maliochini. Laura, can you tell me about your relationship to the restaurant, please? My father opened the restaurant in 1906. He opened on 39th Street, not far from the old Metropolitan Opera House, but there he was renting. And so in 1925, he bought the four brownstones here and moved here. You grew up here? Well, no, in New York, you grew up all over. <laughs> My goodness, I was, first of all, born like everyone in the hospital then as a child was here, but my father and mother, but especially my father, was extremely interested in classical music. So I was taken to my first opera when I was six. I was taken to my first concert at Carnegie Hall when I was six. So in New York, if you're culturally interested, you grow up all over. Tell me more about your father. Did he immigrate from Italy? Yes. Piemonte, way up north. What was it like growing up around the restaurant? I was never uh, in the restaurant. I was upstairs, and uh, I was only in the restaurant on Sunday lunch. And what led you to become involved in the restaurant? Oh, it was a purely sentimental thing. I had gotten my degree in art history at, at Bryn Mawr, and I learned that my father had sold the restaurant, and I was shocked. And I went to him and I said, why have you done this? And he said, because it's not for you. And I understood what he meant. The restaurant business probably did not satisfy his cultural valences, and he felt that they wouldn't satisfy mine. So I was a very naughty and determined creature. I grabbed on to one of the boyfriends that I had, who was a lawyer, and I said, let's go and speak to the purchaser. And we went. 
and um, I said, I don't want you to buy the restaurant. I want you to renege. They hadn't closed yet. And he said, what? I said, yes, because I wanted to remain in the family. And then I started to cry, and that moved the purchaser, and he said, okay, I'll do that. So he got in touch with my father and told him what happened. And I, I didn't tell my father, and my father only because he was a very gentle person. All he said to me was, how could you have done this? <laughs> then I said to him, but, after about a month, I want to redo the restaurant. I want to redecorate the restaurant in the style of 18th century Piemonte. He said nothing. His restaurant was very, very handsome, but I had a completely different conception. Then, after about a month, I said, to do that, I'm going to need to close the restaurant. Ah, he said. And every summer we were going to Italy and to Europe by boat then. We would always go the day after school ended. But um, he came to me and said, your mother and I have decided we're going earlier this year. And they left in May. And then we ended up being closed a year and a half because my father had a stroke while he was in Italy. And uh, it stopped the work that I was doing here. I had to fly over. And we reopened then in 1962. Did your father stay involved in the restaurant? No, he had a stroke. He was unable to be involved. As a matter of fact, he never saw the restaurant as I redid it. He was moved to New York, and three months later he died. We intended to bring him to see the restaurant, but one night he just died. And what happened from there with you at the helm of the restaurant? What were the next steps? The new look of the restaurant demanded, it had become, and it had not, it had not been my intention, an elegant restaurant. It was not what I had meant to do, so I had to change the prices, the menu, et cetera, et cetera. What did I, it used to be? What did it start as? I mean, it served hundreds of people yeah. a day, so I wouldn't call it home cooking. It was just that my father wanted the prices not to be high because he wanted it affordable to everyone. He was very conscious of people's financial abilities. Tell me more about your customers. Who are your customers? Oh, my goodness. All sorts of people. We don't have a certain class or a certain group. Do you have any good stories from over the years? I'm sure you must. Yes. Yes? <laughs> Could you share? Are there any that come to mind? Yes. Well, first of all, after three months that I'd been running the restaurant, it was really a lot. And my mother, who had never worked in her life, who was utterly beautiful. I mean, she was something you cannot imagine, a cross between, I would say, Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich. And I said to her, you know, why don't you come and help me? And so the last 20 years of her life were, I think, the best, because she had a job. And she loved being with the public much more than I do. She loved being with the public. So she would be the first one down in the morning. She would be the last one up at night. She would greet everyone who came in. She enjoyed that very, very much. Well, one night, my mother and I were seated at a table in the main dining room against the wall. And she saw somebody that looked kind of run down. I didn't have my glasses on. And she said, you know that person? 
looks run down. I don't think he's going to be able to afford the restaurant. So she called the maitre d' over it. She said the same thing to him. He said, he's expecting three other people. She said, wonderful. Then you bring him the menu. When the three other people come, he'll look at the menu with them, and they have an excuse to go somewhere else. Then somebody in the restaurant said to me, you know who you have there? I said, no, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger? Oh, my God. Obviously, he could afford the restaurant. I came back to my mother, and I said, that's Mick Jagger. She was very interested in classical music, but she didn't know contemporary music, I'd say. And she said, who is Mick Jagger? I said, the Rolling Stones. She said, who are the Rolling Stones? So I explained it. She liked the whole thing very much. So suddenly, whole attitude changed. When the other three stones arrived and they were seated, she went over, had them bring a bottle of Dom Perignon, and said, it's so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for coming. And they fell in love with her. She wasn't a motherly type at all, but they used to call her mum. So they would come all the time and ask for mum. And then my mother uh, developed leukemia at a certain point. So she was no longer coming into the restaurant. She was upstairs. And she, they, they would always ask, how is she doing? How is she doing? She developed a leukemia that usually is not fatal. But in her case, it was different. And when she then died, they came in and said, how's mom? And we had put a picture. She had died just two weeks before with a black velvet border in the coat room. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to tell you that um, she passed away two weeks ago. The Rollings went out, bought a bouquet of flowers, brought it back, put it in front of her picture, and said, that's for mom. Now, you want another story? I'll tell you another story. My husband had fantastic white hair. He turned white very early, but something fantastic. He also was, I have to say, a very handsome man, extremely. So he came to dinner. He used to cut his own hair. He never went to a barber. And he had cut so much that I looked at him and I said, ah, you look like a radish. You know, because a radish is smooth here and then it goes like this. He said, yeah, I do. And we didn't speak the rest of the dinner. In the corner was Andy Warhol. And when it came time to, for my husband and me to go home, I said, I have to go by and say goodnight to Andy Warhol. So we went to Andy Warhol's table. And as we're approaching the table, Andy Warhol looks at my husband and said, are you an actor? And so then my husband later said to me, you called me a radish. And Andy Warhol called me an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Was your husband involved with the restaurant? Not at all. What did your husband do? My husband was a scientist. Can you tell me about him a little bit? Well, my husband came to this country from Germany with an MD, but he realized soon after he got his MD that he wanted to do research, so he came and went to Wisconsin, to Madison, and got a PhD. Then he came to the Rockefeller University and joined the lab of George Pallade. George Pallade was a molecular cell biologist. Later, when George Pallade left Rockefeller to go to Yale, my husband became head of the lab. And then in 1999, my husband won the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Can I ask what it was like for you, especially in the 60s and 70s, being a woman who was running a business? 
I never was conscious of that. I always felt, maybe because I was an only child, that I was a person. First of all, that's first. But second of all, who was going to discriminate against me as a woman? Certainly not those who were trying to sell to us. And the clients? No. Not even the staff. She's a wonderful lady. But at the same time, she's a perfectionist. So everything has to be, the lamp has to be a certain way, the flowers have to be a certain way, and we treat the people quite nice here. <laughs> well, I hope more than quite nice. Roberto, you've been here for a long time. Are you, you were here and you left and you came back. What made you come back? I come back because I love the history of the restaurant first. For me, I was, at my age, I'm not looking for an extra money, but I want to work in a nice place, and this was the one. Besides that, the history, the people that come here. People who want to eat well, but at the same time want to be in a nice place, and want to be treated like a family. And it's very important to us. She's in the front, in front of the bar most of the time. I started a few years ago, maybe See, four or five years ago. Actually before, and I remember very well. I used to sit in the back. And she used to walk every single table. She used to pass by and ask everyone how he's feeling, how was everything, how's the service one. He was explaining the history, how she remodeled the restaurant. Tell me more about the decoration and the well, architecture. All of this is original. This was, of course, the drawing room or living room. This was the entrance through which the master of the house came because the lounge, that was the kitchens for the family and uh, where the servants lived. But the master of the house in these brownstones came up the stairs outside and then this was his living room. The room facing the back was always the dining room. All of this beautiful wood was painted over in black Black. So one day I took some paint remover and I saw burl. I said, oh my God. So I had the whole thing stripped and then we just waxed it over. Then I did the next building from 1874, which has a different style. In just seven years, the style changes. Have you done now all of the buildings? That no, you not the last one, not um, the last one. So three out of four. Now, the other building, they have a wonderful mirrors. And these mirrors, they are unique. But also, in the main dining room, the chandelier there. Oh, that I've, I forgot that to mention, mention in that terms place. of collecting. When I first decided to make the, uh, redo the interior of the restaurant, and this floor was done only a few years later, the restoration. I, and I decided I wanted it in the 18th century style of Piemonte, which is when, from the decorative point of view, Piemonte reaches its peak. And searching for pieces, because I wanted to use as many authentic pieces as I could, and only use reproductions if I had to. Oh, I come across this chandelier which was in a bedroom, but they were selling the contents of this house that had belonged to the royal family. And I said, I would like to buy the chandelier. They said, the chandelier is not for sale. I negotiated it two years. Finally, I bought it, was able to buy it, 
It was t taken apart, shipped over, and we put it all back together again. So if you go downstairs, some of the pieces are original, but certainly I wasn't going to find 180 original chairs, Piemontese from the 18th century. So I went into the Museum of Decorative Arts, picked a chair that would work, and then asked to reproduce it, and they were made in Italy. And then I took a brocade fabric that most resembled the brocade fabric that was on the chair in the Museum of Decorative Arts. And what year is the chandelier downstairs? 1775. There we are. The prints that are hanging on the wall, they're all from Piemonte, bought in Torino, capital of Piemonte. It took a while to assemble them. And they are something called the Teatro Sabaudo, which is 48 prints. They're all from 1682 and show the cities that had belonged to the Savoys who were the princes or kings of Piemonte. The Savoys, in turn, when Italy was unified much later, became the kings of Italy. At the end of World War II, the royal family in Italy was exiled, so Italy is no longer a monarchy. Can you tell me about your menu, please? The menu has dishes which date back to my father's time and dishes up to our time, and by each dish is noted the year that it was first served at Barbetta. The dishes from Piemonte are in red, the others are in black. Do you have a favorite dish? No, I don't have a favorite dish. We have a unique dish. Oh, yes, a unique dish. He's unique right. than nobody else make it. It's a secret recipe. She not give you away the recipe for nothing. And it's the gnocchettis. Our gnocchi are like powder puffs. They're, They're so very light. unique. Then if you eat dishes like the prosciutto al melon, we not do it just the regular way other places. We use four different types of melon, including watermelon there with the prosciutto, and the prosciutto in San Daniele is the best of the best. Another different pasta is the linguine with black olive puree. In black olives, the way in Piemonte they make it. And the agnellotis are very special. It's made it by hand, one by one. How do the recipes get passed between the chefs? She's the one who have to take, she's very tough, by the uh -huh. way. To so put it in the menu, she have to pass some period, I mean, to check everything. So, Laura, you, you help to pass down the recipes and make sure that everything is I don't cook. I don't pass on the recipes, but I taste everything. And I tell them, no, it's not quite right. Yes. And most of the time when she go to Italy, she finds yes. out what they're cooking and I they try. I bring back See. ideas. Very good and beautiful is the fonduta. The fonduta is a basic Piemontese dish. It was really designed in Piemonte to be served with truffles. During the truffle season, we were the first restaurant in the United States to serve truffles. And you couldn't even buy them here. No one was importing them. So we had somebody going to the airport in Milan with a box of truffles, handing it to whoever they were in contact with, and then that person would deliver them to us. It was a tremendous job because they're very perishable. If you don't serve them in a week, at the most 10 days, it's over. And you have to remember that she have a house in Piemonte. 
in the region where the truffles come from. Yes, and so we also had truffle hounds. We had the most wonderful truffle hounds. One year she bring the dogs from Italy and she put the truffles in the garden. We buried the truffles in the garden and then released them so that, and everybody stepped outside so they could see what the dogs do. You know, they sniff, they sniff like mad. And then when they finally sniff a truffle, they start going like this, and immediately the truffle hunter has to tie them to a tree or something, otherwise they'll destroy the truffle. And that performance, let's call it, was also done in Carnegie Hall. They had to bring in potted plants, big potted trees, I should say, and the truffles were put in the pots. And I think it's the only time a dog has been on the stage of Carnegie Hall. And the truffles are not the only first here, right? It's many first. Can you tell me about some of the others? Many first. For example, the espresso coffee machine. That was written up in the Times, by the way. I have to try to find the article because it goes way back to when my father was still alive. He was the first to import an espresso machine to this country in 1911. And Eduardo, did you ever work with Laura's father? No, I never met the yes. father or his mother. Yeah. No, unfortunately not. But what I want to tell you, that Barbetta was very well known at the time I arrived in this country. You have to remember, until 1966, Madison Square Garden used to be two blocks from here. And every convention, they come to eat to Barbetta. And now, the opening for Hamilton was here. Mr. Chernoff, the guy who wrote the book, it was like 90 people, it was a big party. Also, Lin-Manuel Miranda came many times to eat here. And so many other famous people. She talking about the Rolling Stone. A couple of years ago, I, I did in the big table, table 23, Kiss, the band Kiss, they come into the lay show, whatever, Jimmy Kimmel, they come into it together. Oh, and then when Elizabeth Taylor was on Broadway, she used to come, I don't know how she could do this, she used to come every night for dinner before going and doing the performance. Every night she would eat substantially and then go. She was doing a Who Killed Virginia Woolf, I believe. And then one night that she wore the the ring. The ring, the diamond ring, she came with a bodyguard. Glenda Jackson was here one night. was late that night. She was doing three tall women in Broadway. Then talking about opera, I told you, 1906, when they opened Caruso, came here. But after you name it, Pavarotti, Andrea Bocelli, Marcello Mastroianni, Sofia Lawrence, but let me mention one night that was very special for me. I have the chance to serve Mrs. Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy. She came very often. And she was so elegant, she arrived early. I remember she was very uh, apple green, and then she was expecting Oscar de la Renta and his wife. And she was such a beautiful person, very easy to serve and Mr. De La Renta was the best, also. Why do you think all of these big names, these important people come? Why do they choose to come here? Because Barbetta is an institution. It's much more than a restaurant. They like the food, and they like the place. 
And because the place looks different than most places look now. Can you speak more about how you fit into the restaurant scene in New York today, and maybe actually about Restaurant Row in particular? Well, when years ago there were about two restaurants, three restaurants on Restaurant Row. Now there are many. The theaters, when I first took over Barbetta, the curtain time was 8.40, not 8, 8.40. Then it became 8, okay. Then one day, Mr. Wankel was waiting for his guest. Wankel is the head of the Schubert organization. And he always wants to speak to me, so I went to his table and sat down and spoke to him. He said, you know, we're changing the curtain time to 7. I said, you are? He said, yes. I said, oh, Mr. Wankel, that's going to be terrible for restaurants. And he, with a big smile, said, but it's going to be wonderful for the theaters. And that is true. It became very bad for the restaurants. Because who wants, if you have to be at the theater at 7, you have to leave the restaurant by 6.30 or 6.40. Uh, who wants to eat at 5? Or they may still be in their office. Are there other ways that you've seen New York change over time? New York used to be the city that never sleep. Now if you pass around 2 o'clock in the morning, you don't find too many people around. I mean, I tell you that much. But they eat different also. Lighter. They drink different. Before I remember the most popular drinks, we are Brandy Alexander with green, with everything. Now our people, younger people, than they are vegan, vegetarian, and so forth. And wine is very popular now. I mean, everybody drinks mostly wine now. But you do have a big wine reserve. Oh my goodness, our wine list is 72 pages. And it's the second list in the country. I mean, pages. See. It's the second list on the... On the country, and probably the first for just for Italian wines. Yes. And she has some wines, probably more than a million dollars in wines downstairs. I mean, oh, more. But probably... We're in short for no even know that. The list we have is unbelievable. Who chooses the wines? We have a sommelier, of course. Yes. We have a sommelier. Like to always ask if there's anything that you would like for people to know about Barbera that you think that they wouldn't know already. I think that you have to simply experience it to see it. If you'd like to learn more about Barbera or about the thousands of other small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NY Sideways. See you next time.